Hi, I'm Ian Pringle. This is the Loyalty Podcast from New World Loyalty, where we help you make the most of your loyalty strategies by listening to us talk about what we like to talk about most, which is loyalty and loyalty programs. In this podcast, we'll debunk some of the myths and misunderstandings that we've seen in our time in the loyalty industry. To help me with this task, I'm joined by some of our podcast regulars who have all been there, done that, to have a duster drawer full of loyalty team away day t-shirts. So please welcome tonight uh, Phil Gunter from Brisbane. Hi, Phil. Morning, Ian. Joanne Ward from Canada. Hi, Joanne. Hi there. Stuart Dennis from Brisbane. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Ian. Craig Grimshaw from New Zealand. Hi, Craig. Greetings, Ian. Greetings, listeners. <laughs> Alan Lyers from the UK. Hi, Alan. Evening all. Adam Poster from Melbourne. Hi, Alan. Hello, everyone. Um, Dave Fellman from Los Angeles. Hi, Ian. Dave Canton from Atlanta. Hi, Dave. <laughs> hey, how's it going, all? Brilliant. <laughs> Tremendous. So who'd like to dive in and, and with the first loyalty myth to bust? Um, Phil Gunter from Australia, how about you? Do you want to kick, kick us off tonight? Why not? And I'll start off with a really easy one, but a common one. And the myth is uh, that loyalty programmes should focus on rewarding their most loyal customers. Hear it oh, a lot. And indeed, occasionally, sometimes, often, it is the right answer. But I just want to show that it's a myth that it's always the right answer. Um, two core reasons. The first, uh, often your most loyal customers are actually maxed out. They're giving you all their, their, uh, all their custom that they can, and so there's just no upside. So, so if you take an example of, of say, a, a fast food, and um, you see that often their most loyal customers come in every single week, often on the same night. It's the habit. It's a Friday night thing. And if you give them a, a reward of, say, one, uh, buy six, get one free, then every seventh week, you, you lose your revenue. So it's a pure cost, it's a lost revenue, which goes straight to the bottom line. And those customers can't buy any more than they already are, or certainly should encourage them to. Um, and at the same time, often with a loyalty program, the biggest upside comes from re- getting a little bit more out of, out of the uh, infrequent customers. Yeah. Although we talk about a loyalty program, but if you can engage your infrequent customers and get just one more transaction out of your long tail, you can often make a big upside. So if your program's only focusing on rewarding your most loyal, you're, you're giving away cost without getting benefit from them, and you're not engaging your long tail, which means you're giving away or you're missing out on upside, which you could otherwise have. I had a, just this case the other day, actually, where one of my clients came to me and said, um, look, we've had some research where our most loyal customers are telling us they don't feel rewarded, so we need a loyalty program. And I was just saying, well, so what? <laughs> if your loyalty programs, if your most loyal customers are giving you a lot of money and they and they don't feel rewarded, that's not necessarily a reason to have a loyalty program. Exactly. At the end so, of the day, you have a program to make money. So, yeah. what's the definition of a loyalty program then? Well, exactly. I think I think a loyalty a loyalty mechanic is there to 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 influence customers to make more money. Is where I'm is where I'm coming from. I think that's where you're coming from as well, Phil, isn't it? Exactly. I've said many times that loyalty is a a terrible word for the industry because it's a program for engaging customers and it's either retaining customers that are buying from you and sometimes that's why you need to reward your loyal customers and it can be a a program for getting more out of people that aren't buying frequently from you. But it isn't loyalty. You you can never expect loyalty from a customer. No. Buy a dog. (laughs) (laughs) And Joanne, I'll just, just take out Elias for a while. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. You'll have me, you'll have me for life. <laughs> and, and Joanne, how about you? Oh, okay. So the myth I wanted to talk about is that uh, 
points expiry is a bad thing. Ooh, yes. And Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, if you look at it from a member perspective, certainly having a program where there is no expiry is probably simplest, you know, the most flexible. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have higher engagement or, um, you know, members really engaging in your program. So I think the challenge is if you can do the expiry um, policy right, and, and it is kind of a fine balancing act, um, you can actually uh, kind of, in, you know, uh, encourage people to be more active. So I think some of the things you need to look at is, you know, first of all, um, you know, what is the average time to a reward? How long does it typically take people to earn enough points to get something? Or, you know, are your, do you have rewards that people can redeem for? Let's say with, you know, that only take them maybe, you know, 12, 12 months to earn. Um, so it's kind of looking at really what your activity rates are like and then looking at a way to put an expiry that is, that is reasonable um, and then giving members a way to keep their points active. So I think the, the type of expiry is important. So example, if you do date stamping, which is typically just, you know, every point is, has a life for X amount of time versus a policy where there's an inactivity rule, you know, your points expire after 12 months. If you don't have some sort of an activity, there's a big difference. Uh, yeah. A good, I mean, a good example of one that, that didn't go very well was here in Canada when Air Miles um, had planned to put in a uh, expiry because of date stamping. That was back in 2017. And it just created like a huge uh, outcry from the members. People were running around, you know, redeeming for all kinds of stuff they didn't really want because they just didn't want to lose their points. And in the end, they actually had to pull back on that um, because it was just such a negative for them. And it actually led to some legislation here in two provinces um, that now it, it isn't legal to do that. So you can't expire points uh, in Ontario or Quebec simply by putting a date stamp. You have to have some sort of an activity rule to give people ways to keep their points active. Yeah, and I'll give you another example of a similar thing. When when we when uh, when Air Miles in the UK brought in expiry, they we so Air Miles in the UK brought in expiry, and at the same time they we brought in free flights. And so the journalists love the story about expiry. They love to go crazy for that because it's expiry. Mm. You never had expiry before. They want to show it in the press, but but because at the same time they introduce free flights. The have, bringing the expiry in and getting that hook for the journalists was actually a really big story. We were on the news and all sorts. We were very, very high. But actually, once the journalists understood we brought in this, but actually we, we were also bringing in free flights at the same time, that had... The, because, it, because, Joanne, customers recognise when, when an expiry policy is fair. Yeah, exactly. And I think as long as you give people, you know, you communicate to them so they know what the policy is, they know when they potentially have have points that they're going to lose. And, and, and you can use it as an opportunity to educate them more about the program. You know, what are the ways, easy ways they could, could earn more points? You know, an example, like in a frequent flyer program, if there's partnerships where, you know, you could go to a gas station and fill up once to get, you know, to keep your points active. Or if there's you know, low kind of uh, low priced rewards that also give you um, 
a way to keep keep you know your bigger balance active. It, it really, I, as you say, I think people, you know, recognize that that's fair, and they're not going to you know be be really pissed off about it as long as they know what it is and they have chances to keep everything active. It's also a great way to get people to take a credit card because <laughs> know, a exactly. lot of you know a co-brand <laughs> card because typically when you have a co-brand card and you're using that. Um, frequently, you're 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 never going to have your points expiring because it's also the best way activity. for the marketing department to get hold of a, an email that gets the biggest response rate is the one yeah. that says Re yeah, you're going to lose your points if you don't start doing yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. Can, I, can I check something? Can I check yeah. something with the group? Because I completely concur that that some having expiry can be good, but you've got to get the policy right. But can I just check? Does has anyone got an example where date stamping is a good thing? Because I do not, I've never no. seen date stamping work. Date stamping is done. Can we can we all agree on that? Totally. Can you, I just, sorry, Phil, you mean, you mean date, date stamping versus, you mean date so stamping time, versus activity stamping? Yeah. So, so I'm saying activity expiry is good, time stamping, done. Bad. Can we, can we? <laughs> to totally agree. Um, yeah. In fact, Jet, JetBlue's old program had time stamping. And it was basically, as people were earning, they were losing on the back end. It was yeah. kind of outrageous. Um, Co complex, unengaging, and and leads, leads to customer complaints. And 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 there's no benefit. I just see no benefit. And it's complex. And you've got how how to communicate it. Um, there's airlines still have it, Craig. Yeah. Yeah. You hit the nail on the podcast. head. Yeah. It's, a, it's a whole nother podcast, though. You're on the wrong podcast, Phil. This is the myth-busting mm. podcast, not, not the what does, what does Phil hate podcast. <laughs> I like That's, a That's a whole nother one. That's a whole nother one. That could be a great one, though. <laughs> it was probably yeah. implemented by accountants. So oh, those exactly. muggles. I agree with Phil. I agree with Joanna, actually. Joanna, that expiry is fine as long as it generates activity and ongoing engagement. But to Phil's point, there are airlines many still actually i can think of three the time date miles and as all three of them if i remember rightly have uh tipping partnerships out of the airline into another program now the exchange rate's poor but it's just cash flow out of the business for no reason at all so yeah. if you are going to be if you are going to time date you might as well go all the way and not and be completely cynical and don't have a way of converting the miles before they expire into another program even at 10 to 1 exchange rate, because you're, you're asking for trouble. To Phil's point, I think we're all aligned. Timestamping is dead. Exactly. It, so, yeah. so, Stuart, you, how about you? You've got, you've got one. Yeah, so my myth is uh, loyalty programs make money. Um, oh, typical so accountant. We, we, we like <laughs> yours, Stuart. Everyone looks at all the big programs, United, American, you know, that have raised capital and... and you know, all these successful programs around the globe. And, uh, and they often come to us as consultants and say, I want to build a loyalty program like that and make money. Um, the real issue is that most loyalty programs, and, and Phil kind of touched on this before, is that they're really just a substitute for a marketing program. And so for marketing spend. So it's just a marketing expense on the P&L. And so instead of doing a big out-of-home billboard at the airport, we go and launch a, a loyalty program. And, um, and so um, the myth is that, that you know, and, and the reality is most programs, when they first launch, don't make any money. They are just a marketing expense. They only start making money when they build enough scale in their customer database and start to bring in 
external partners. So like your co-brand credit cards, etc. That's when they only start to make money. And, uh, and, and, you know, the making money part of that is largely down to um, the accountants because I can, make, uh, I can make United Airlines today, their loyalty program, not make money, and I can make the airline make all the money. So accountants can move money left and right, left hand to right hand, and uh, between the airline and the program, and, uh, and structure things. And so, you know, um, anytime that anyone brings us in to do a review of a loyalty program anywhere globally, um, part of what we'll do is a financial model uh, that will look at the existing state of the program. Uh, and then, you know, Phil and I often will talk through what could we do with this program to make it make money and the tweaks we can do. And so to, to what Joanne was talking about, things like expiry rates and how we change those are often a part of that. And, uh, and, and you know, often we can turn a program that's not making money into one that will make money in the future with a strategy that supports it working with other partners as well as working on the existing internal uh, airline side of the, uh, the program. Can I, can, I add, can I add a thought to that, Stuart? Um, funny enough, I worked with a client about three years ago and, and they're still implementing the stuff that I recommended. Don't know why it's taking them so long. Um, but essentially what it did, they were never ever, you know, we're used to, there's, uh, those of us who have worked in airlines, we're used to the programs making a profit, let alone a contribution. But actually what's happened with this client, and it's a, it's a, a ferry company, believe it or not. What's happened is that marketing is at an expense and marketing uh, uh, had its role to build, bring business, build business, retain customers, introduce a loyalty program that was seen as a marketing expense. But when they introduced partners, even though the program is still an expense, the anticipation was, and what we try to engineer, and it became true, is that the relationship between effectively marketing and finance changed because suddenly the marketing budget is smaller or the marketing budget is the same, but because of the contribution partners, there's more bang for the buck. And actually what you have, you, you move from the coloring in department to actually a commercial area and marketing being seen as commercial is so strong. Even if you're just generating 10, 15% contribution to the overall P&L, uh, sorry, uh, A&P spend. So I think that's something that often clients go, I want to make a profit, I want to make a profit. And I go, well, you don't want to make, just make it, just change your relationship with the business by introducing ancillary revenues from partners who also give you ancillary channels and it's a, it's a great marketing play. So I think, uh, you know, as long as making money means bringing money rather than profit, it's a very healthy thing to be looking at. Yeah, exactly. But you, oh. you need a bit of scale and you've got to start from base yeah. zero where you're not going to make any money. So. No. But also the, the role of the loyalty program is to support the overarching business as well. So it's not, the loyalty program may well make money or it may not make money, but the whole objective of the loyalty program is to help the overarching Absolutely. business. Absolutely. Absolutely. Craig, what, what, if, what, what if the overarching business is the loyalty program? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. But I mean, the other thing I guess would be there, there are some standalone programs that are separate companies and they do, you know, they are set up and to make, to make money, but they're, they're completely separate. But Craig's point is really, Craig's yeah, point is really interesting because if, you know, even airlines, some airlines still think like this, which is they see the miles as a cost. They don't see the link between the fact that if we didn't have issue miles, they'd have to reduce yield and they wouldn't have airline partnerships. They wouldn't be part of an alliance. So actually the airline, the airline itself, thinks he doesn't have to pay for points often. Now, most mature airlines understand it, do. 
then the question is, what is the deal? You know, to Stuart's point, we can make American lose money, make American airline loyalty make money, whatever. In the end, the bargain is, what is the, what is the displaced revenue cost of the reward program? Because the rewards, let's face it, flight rewards for an airline are the biggest cost. Um, versus what is the cost the program is going to charge the airline versus what it charges other partners are more commercial. So trying to get all that sweet spot figured out is is actually, ironically, the best way you can serve the core objective that Craig just set out, which is to support the core business. But also, if you get that right, today's point, the launch program itself is a complementary business. Yeah. So let's make a flip into retail now. Um, Adam Posner, have you got any retail example? A retail example or a myth bust? A myth bust. Okay. Um, So, well, whether it's retail or not, it's uh, transactional loyalty is dead. Nice. Nice. You hear that at every single conference. They talk about transactional loyalty being dead. Yeah. And, um, you know, just uh, as you all know, um, (laughs) I I do the For Love or Money annual study on consumer insights into loyalty programs. And I've been looking at the sort of the five benefit layers of, of programs and at the base layer, we have transactional loyalty, and then we have experiential, and then we have utility, we have personal, and we have social. But, you know, tracking transactional loyalty, it's its interesting. It's slowly changing and shifting in terms of what consumers want from currencies within a program. So, uh, yes, it's still the base level, and everybody wants some sort of financial reward, you know, discount, a saving, a point that turns into something. Um, and But yet, it's actually decreasing slowly. So... Whilst I say it's it's dead, it's dying slowly, but it will never go away. Yeah. Uh, I think consumers still want something for the hip pocket, no matter what. If they want a value exchange for, you know, you talk about the data and they want points back or a reward, uh, you know, the transactional loyalty is still there. Um, so is it really dead? I'd say it's dying slowly because we're all as loyalty marketers trying our hardest to, to move a transactional relationship to more of an emotional connection. And putting back that word, my famous little word, joyalty, into yes. programs. Yes. Um, <laughs> <I'll cut> <laughs> joyalty. <laughs> yeah. You've got a car. You've got a car. You've got a car. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, uh, you know, I'm interested in the rest of the group's point of view on, on transactional loyalty being dead or dying. Yeah, I think what is what is dying uh, is, is that programs that just have transactions are best just based on transactions are probably dying you have to be more than that now you have to be closer to the brand and reflect the brand and and be more about the brand than just points win prizes i'd say that uh, i agree but i think 80 percent of it is still transactional and you know in the end you know pavlov you, you, you know you, you, you flash a light you ring a bell and you can get people to do certain things today it's a digital bell and it's a very intuitive experience but it's still about the beef, isn't it? The the, the, stu- the stuff is, around the edge but... is more high. If the hygiene works and the transaction is attractive, the fluff is just, is just fluff. Yeah, but to Ian's point, there is there is brand attachment, and it's and you still need transactional elements to drive that um, yeah. that element. Um, so I I I'm not entirely sure it's dead, and I think what your point there is that it's a myth that it's dead. Um, yeah, that's, not, that's the point we're busting a myth so it's, it's not actually dead um, it's still a fundamental base I think it is a fundamental base and I think it, it basically shows a level of engagement and attachment to a certain brand we spoke about is loyalty the right word probably not but it's it, essentially we're all kind of 
part of rewards programs because we are giving something back. We're rewarding certain types of behaviors and those behaviors will include a transactional element. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just see lots of retail programs trying to, because at, at a transactional layer, I mean, it's, you're competing on price. I mean, any program, retailer next door can start a program and you have the same discount orientation, can have the same tra uh, uh, points for, you know, for purchase, but you're still competing on price. And that, that's why you talk about fluff. It is fluff, but actually it augments the, la you know, you've got to add layers on top of that to create that brand engagement and, and, and whatever it is. So whilst it's there, it's, it's, you know, it's being brilliant at the basics. You've got to build on top of that if you truly want your program to be different, a little bit more interesting and break out of the clutter. I was going to say, it's like, you know, I think, was it Alan who said, it's like the beef. I mean, it's basically the basic hamburger with no toppings. The fluff, I mean, it is all the extra stuff that makes your program different, that is more engaging, that's not just sort of what everybody else does, that's, that's also important. But I do agree, I don't think it's dead. It's just that there needs to be more than just the transactional now to so, make your so program stand out. So the one I wanted to raise was, was, was builds on that or was related to that. So the myth I wanted to bust was that redemptions increase collection. Oh. <laughs> David's laughing down there. Because um, I, came, I went to a conference, um, it was actually back in 2011, where Loy Logic presented some work which said that, um, that if you redeem, that, that after you've redeemed, people collect more points. And I came back from this conference and said, brilliant. Went back to my analytics team and said, brilliant, this is fantastic. We have to do this piece in that piece of analysis because wouldn't it be great to tell all our sponsors and all our customers and everyone that, that, and all the people in the airline that when people redeem, they collect more. And the analysis team went away and came back and said, it's not true. <laughs> they just got it wrong, uh, Ian. Yeah, well, what happens is, is that um, in a long-term collection program where people are collecting over years and years and years to get a reward, is there are a number of customers that when they get the reward, they stop collecting. And because those customers are, were, are generally fairly active, is that that change of behavior means that it doesn't make up for... Over, over time, people slow down their collection. So the people that re did redeem for flight actually did collect more slowed down their collection at a slower rate than the people that didn't redeem but everyone slows down collection over time was what we found um, now um, Phil and I and lots of people have worked on programs where lower value redemptions after a redemption increases collection after a redemption but actually in a long term loyalty program like a frequent flower program I saw no evidence of it if I'm honest the only time we saw an increase was people who had, who had redeemed for the second or third time and so you know, it was it was a myth that that well, I'd love to have seen it, but that the evidence just wasn't there. Has anyone else seen a similar thing? I've, I actually I actually have seen it uh, work both at an airline and a hotel company where once you redeem, I have seen your activity and your engagement increase. Um, yeah, maybe. The, and actually, when we go on to that though, Dave, it's 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 funny because the 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 biggest drop we saw in the pro, and I think it's probably that you need to understand the redemption dynamics within the program you're in, because actually, what what the 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 flip side of saying, well, if you've got big redemptions, and and you get this 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 behavior over big redemptions, then why don't you offer small redemptions? And that actually had an even worse yeah. result for um, the program I was talking about because it gave the customers who wanted to leave a backdoor to leave and they left. And so 
um, low value redemptions were, were performed even worse than high value flight redemptions for this mm. particular program, Dave, because you're absolutely, I, I'd agree that you've got to, in your program, you have to understand where the carrot is on the stick. If the carrot's too far away, you get redemption, you get behaviors where once they get to the carrot, they give up and never going to do it again. And if the carrot's too close, you get, you know, so you just have to understand your customers and understand your program and get that mm. mechanic right. And I, I mean, what, what I've seen is if, if the, it's all about timing as well. So if you can get people doing a redemption within 12 months, actually, I think this the optimal, I don't know where I got this from, making it up. Um, I think the optimal is about nine months. But it's got to be a redemption that's meaningful. And so the tactic that, I mean, certainly E and I are used to this tactic. We used it at Virgin Atlantic, but also I've seen other airlines use, is to, and this is an airline, primarily an airline context, is to use reward seat sales and opportunities to buy up your miles at a discounted rate in combination so even if i'm a long i think i'm a long-term collector if suddenly i only say twenty thousand and i've got 15 and i've got them in nine months and i can buy five at a discounted rate and i'm a 20 a 20 gives me a meaningful reward even if i have to pay 300 pounds in fees that suddenly that bit that getting there sooner than you expected feeling turns you into future collection I agree with that some in some of it, Alan, because um, if you if customers are are allowed to get there and they 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 contribute towards that, I think that absolutely works. But I'll give you an example where um, I had a client where they they had a minimum commitment. They if they was a bit short on that minimum commitment, and so they had a bunch of miles to give away. And they thought that if they could um, give customers a leg up, they were convinced that the reason why programs weren't performing in certain segments was because customers couldn't afford the redemption. So they gave a load of points to customers to get them to that redemption. And it was the worst performing mailing I have ever seen in loyalty. It just it, it, giving them because you're right, customers want to go for the target that they've given themselves. And if you just gave them enough to get an economy flight to Paris, they were saying, I don't want an economy flight to Paris. I was saving up to go to Australia. And it just didn't. It absolutely bombed. And whereas we, if we, what we were saying, Alan, is give them the carrot, the, the hammock on the beach, we used to call it. Give them the hammock on the beach. Give them an ability to get there and a shortcut to get there that they can get there themselves. Happy days. But giving them the, the I think, just giving them to on a plate doesn't work. Yeah, I, th I think what Alan said there, the, the term he used was a meaningful reward. Yeah. I think that's important because if we're basically throwing stuff out there just to have them spend their points... It, it actually doesn't make sense at all. Yeah. And on, on, on the example that you also used, um, Ian, to, to kind of use a surplus of points because I didn't hit a minimum guarantee to try and energize, activate, or um, have a kind of an audience that hasn't redeemed yet kind of engage. In some cases, a lot of those people will have kind of joined the, the, the program passively. And they're, ne they're, they're actually never looking for a meaningful uh, reward. They're just kind of sitting there um, and have never really thought about the program. Mm. Um, so I think there's going to be elements of that. Some people will be in it for the currency. Other people will be in it for the status um, and, and, and so forth. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting. I think there's arguments on both sides. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just going to say one thing. I'm just thinking with specifically for a program, a frequent flyer program, where typically, you know, it does, if, if, if you don't have a credit card, 
and you're just strict, you know, strictly an infrequent flyer, it can be long to get enough to get a free flight. And then are you necessarily going to start over again? You know, I agree. There's probably a, a good chunk that won't. But I think what's interesting now is that with so many programs having cash and point options, those people that maybe sort of felt like they were never going to get anything because it just was going to take them too long, you know, now they do have that option. You know, they can redeem and still get a meaningful discount um, when they when they want to travel. I think for those people, there is, you know, there is going to be a, a, a good, a sizable portion of them that will be encouraged to do more or look at other ways they could get points because it's, it doesn't a, take them as long now than really it, as it used to. It's a really good point, Joanne. Um, on the back of this of this work, we, we did some research that said, what did you start collecting for and what you redeemed for? And the customers that were most engaged, funnily enough, of course it was, was the ones that were redeeming for things that they wanted to redeem for. And that sounds stupid, but the people who were going for a flight and then redeemed for a box of wine weren't particularly happy with that. Right. Whereas the customers that were collecting for a box of wine and got a box of wine were very happy with that. And I, I, mm. But it's difficult to understand. It's difficult necessarily to predict what people are coming in for and want, you know, in a, yeah. in a massive program. But I think it's a sophisticated topic that 80% of programs out there have never thought through or yeah. haven't revisited at any point during yeah. the journey. It's really important to understand. We had, um, and at Amy, there was a study done of 25 million cards and across a portfolio, and they had a blend of no rewards, hotel and accommodation rewards, and travel rewards as the three different reward options across the card portfolio. And the ones that performed significantly well, no surprise, were the travel rewards, then the hotel accommodation rewards, and the no rewards didn't perform that well. And it was across the portfolio of tenure, revenue, and whatever the third metric was. I forgot what the third metric was. But it, it, that's why I found it quite interesting to go to be the to, contrary to your myth busting piece, Ian. Um, <laughs> that the re rewards depend on the rewards, the reward type actually incented the right behaviour for that card portfolio. Yeah, you have to understand it. Oh, sorry, I was going to say. Um, I think to Ian's point, and between Ian and Ian's myth and Craig's point. If you're seeing in your data um, a bump, a post-redemption bump in activity, it's a good litmus test that something in your program is working right. But so many programs out there that we all have experience working with have something in the program design that isn't working well or is suboptimal or whether it's how the earning velocity, how long it takes to get to reward or it's rewards that the uh, members of collectors aren't actually considering valuable. Um, you know, in my work, every time we've looked at this, the programs that are doing well and seeing a bump, it's because they've they've got this perfect sort of gray area of the reward is considered valuable by the member and it was achievable but not too easy to earn. Um, if if the velocity to earn it is is so quick that it's meaningless and they don't the member doesn't consider that it required any sort of effort or achievement to get it, they're not motivated to do it again. Um, so to speak. So it's all these design elements that everybody's spoken about so far. They all have to be together. And if you've got them in alignment, then there's a very good chance you're going to see this bump. But it's missing in so many programs. But there's reasons for that. But I think I think the reason why it is missing, David, is exactly the word you said: design elements. I think I think in 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 loyalty programs, in my experience, many of them, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys. The law, often the redemption department is being driven by targets that have nothing to do with customer engagement. Mm. 
they're to do with profitability Profit. and they're to do with volume and so what you do is you and then and then you wonder why the customers aren't engaged because they've been because they've gone for a re re redemption that was very very popular that allowed a load of people to exit early and unprofitably anyway david canty would you like to go next sure so the myth that i have uh, chosen is that loyalty is not important to generation z or z oh a lot um, yeah, I hear that a lot, um, that nobody's interested, the, the, this generation are not interested in, in loyalty programs. And it is absolutely a myth. Um, they're not interested in existing legacy loyalty programs that have been around for years because in some ways they kind of feel like they're not relevant to me. Um, and why am I getting involved? So, and it's really, it's been really interesting through COVID actually, which has got nothing to do with Gen Z, but I think this is actually going to help um, with this myth in the sense that Gen Zs aren't kind of launching out into the travel for work kind of space. They're working from wherever they want. Um, but they are very interested in loyalty programs that are simple and reward them with meaningful rewards, Alan Lewis, um, and relevant rewards. And I think that's, that's, that's really important because um, when you actually sit down and speak to them, they're very, very socially conscious and they're very interested in activities and engagements with brands that are socially aware. Um, and if, if, if there are elements of your brand slash program that not only deliver meaningful benefits back to them, but also have a, um, an awareness of what's going on in the general kind of um, social space, they'll engage with your brand and they'll actually become the, the other, the other interesting thing about this generation is they are influenced a lot because they look for validation amongst their, their peers and they chat about, you know, what's your experience with this brand? What's your experience with that program? Should I join? Why should I join? All of those types of things. And once they actually get that validation, they engage and they become influencers themselves. So it's a really interesting um, uh, journey. And I think that's some of the things that the, the major programs that are out there today are struggling with uh, because they've had, um, they've, you know, they've made hay with when, when, when the sun's been shining with the Gen Xers of the world. Um, and even the, the early millennials really engaging with loyalty programs. But Gen Zers are looking at new types of programs. And I think, I think the, the old ones need to start evolving and listening. How can I actually get rid of um, all of the noise around this program and make it simple? Actually, Dave, I'll, I'll uh, support you 100% because the latest research that's coming through from us and for love or money is Gen Z is just uh, off the scales with the non-transactional benefits. So straight into the cause and, and community connection benefits, experiential layers, utility, they way off the charts 
significantly than other generations. In fact, uh, you know, even in the in the COVID question that we, we researched about their their connection with the brand through a program, um, you know, they were more inclined to stay with the brand because of their membership uh, of the program, Generation Z, or as I call them, the Loyal Z generation. So I, uh, I, I um, you know, stick with the Loyal Z generation and loyalty, and you're, you're on your way, Dave. <laughs> I can see you rebranding, Dave. And, and Adam, we'll put a link to that um, research on the on the on the bottom. So sure. if you look in the comments, you'll see a link to that. The comments on LinkedIn, you'll see a link to that. That. So, so thanks, Dave. Alan, would you like to go next? Alan, Alan yes. Lars in the UK. Thank you. So my uh, my premise or my myth that I'm purporting to promote, I believe liability is a good thing. And often, often when you are either talking to somebody who wants to set up a program, you get to that question, yeah, but what about the liability? Or if you're talking to someone who runs a program and sitting on a whole bunch of uh, deferred revenue, they can, they can say, what about the liability? What are we going to do the liability? And of course, in the end, liability, liability is usually only a problem if you don't do the accounting right or you misinterpret or misforecast your ultimate redemption rate, your breakage rates. What, what that big chunk of liability is, is a promise to reward. It's a promise to give something lovely to your customers. And in the end, whether you're loyal to whatever business, as we all know, revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, and cash is king. So, of course, the liability isn't a cash issue. We get the money. in. The question is, when do we book it as profit? And yes, profit is sanity, but all deferred revenue really is an opportunity to do what you should do what's right for your customers and that's it and people get themselves in all sorts of pickle because they're not very good at accounting or projecting what it is or get a bit greedy um and suddenly find themselves in a situation where they've overestimated the the breakage and suddenly they're backpedaling trying to pump out lower value rewards or worse still they revalue the program for an easy win so i think we need to love to learn liability I'd love to learn to learn to love liability. And most of most of us most of us do. Most of us do. But in, Come in, on the, business, in the businesses we work with, work with, we need to get some t-shirts done. Love liability. Learn to love the liability. I can literally see Stuart. He's like if everyone's been to a dog track and watched the dogs, he's literally like one of those dogs that have just put in a trap, waiting to get at you here. So, so Stuart, ready, steady, go. No, I, I love what you're saying, Alan. I'm high five. It's, it's um, it, this is something I've been banging on about for 15, 20 years. There was a, there was a competitor of ours in the uh, loyalty consulting space who pumped out all these papers for. Amy many years ago talking about liability and program management and, 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 you know, be worried about it. Be worried about getting your liability down or whatever. Don't care. Li you're right. Liability is about cash. And I've been saying that it's, it's simply my future cash flow opportunity. That's all exactly. it is. It's the easiest way to make money and, and generate a profit in a loyalty program is get it off the balance sheet in the P&L. So exactly. I love liability. Absolutely. Well, we, we need to get those T-shirts done, Alan. I'll get you one for Christmas. I love a liability. Yeah. <laughs> or, or liability, liability is not a liability. Yes, absolutely. If, um, if you don't, those nasty accountants, they'll screw you up and, uh, and give you a target yeah. you can't achieve and then it becomes a problem. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. But I so think it's a comment you made before, Phil, in another podcast, just about making sure when you get um, some loyalty program managers who don't understand... Um, accounting and leave it up to the accountant to drive outcomes 
that's when you've got an issue. You need to make sure that you understand what the financial uh, requirements are, how they can be worked in your favour to make sure you drive the right program. Going back to program design and program management. Uh, what do you think? Hard, put me in his team. Exactly. Get 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 the gamekeeper in in your own team. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Dave Feldman, do you like to go next? Yeah, I've got a great follow on a follow up one from that discussion, and it's you know the the myth is that you know all redemptions are good redemptions at any cost. Um, and it, it, it's really a financial kind of myth, bit of a myth. And it's, it's, it's funny what everyone just said because, you know, we're all geeks, you know, uh, here, you know, and we love oh, yeah, yeah, know, yeah, yeah, loyalty. Yeah. <laughs> well, except for Craig, you know, but that's a similar thing. Um, you know, but we all, we all love, you know, the, the loyalty financials and, you know, we find it fascinating. But it is over the head of a lot of people. And a lot of people just, it's not a topic they enjoy, even if they do understand it. Um, you know, and I know that we all work with a lot of program managers, you know, some of which, you know, it's not their background that they come to um, or come from and others that they fully understand it, but they have a lot of trouble, you know, necessarily getting their teams to understand um, that liability isn't necessarily bad, you know, and that especially in modern uh, accounting, that having redemptions actually drives revenue on the profit and loss, which of course is what most loyalty programs are measured on in their uh, corporate hierarchies. And it's interesting because I've, I've, I've done a lot of training with, with teams on loyalty programs to get them to understand where you've had the, the program head who fully understands it um, and wants to get the rest of the team to understand redemptions aren't bad. Um, and it's sometimes, it's fascinating to watch the, the mindset change from where they're thinking, oh, redemptions cost us money, it, it's bad for the program, it's bad for the finances, it's bad for the financials, um, or the only redemptions we want to drive are the lowest cost ones, get everybody into really poor value gift cards, uh, which as we know isn't optimal either. I've seen it go too far, where people are just like, oh, they're fully embracing this, oh, a redemption means it's revenue to the program and our KPIs upstairs look good and everyone on the program's getting a pay rise because we're driving all these redemptions and the the loyalty program PL looks fantastic. The problem is, is that I've seen a lot of people seem to miss a trick um, where they don't realize that it's not a redemption at any cost. Uh, you, you can still go bankrupt um, driving all the redemptions and clearing out the, the liability because you've got money going out the door without any more coming in. Um, or you've got money going out the door at a cost higher than the revenue the program generated from those redemptions. So the, the lesson or the takeaway from that I'd say to people is absolutely work to upskill your teams on how you know, liability isn't a liability and love the liability and the redemptions are good, but it's complex, it's nuanced, and you know don't just leave it to the finance department, but understand that there is, there is a formula in there that works. If you get it wrong, you're gonna have troubles. <laughs> It's not a great T-shirt, though, is it, Dave? <laughs> Love the library. It's, not, well, it's, not a sexy. it's quite. It's quite small print on a T-shirt. <laughs> you got to manage. Maybe that should be on the back of the T-shirt. Yeah, absolutely. On the front, you can have on the front, you can have learn to love the liability, and on the back, you have a picture of Stuart that says. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And so. And so la last tonight is Craig. Craig, how would you, you got up earlier, so I think you're uh, you're the last of us, I'm afraid. Oh, no, that's no problem at all. Um, what I've got is loyalty, and to carry on from what Dave Canty uh, made a reference, a uh, slight reference, which may have gone over the top of everyone because it's so engrossed, but it was uh, loyalty program is a points program. 
And it's one of the things when you go in to see uh, people when they say, right, I want a loyalty program, and they start talking about points. And so the, the comment I look at is, um, you can't put lipstick on a bulldog. <laughs> because if your product is no good or your service is no good, then it doesn't matter whatever you do for a loyalty program, you need to get those sorted. And that in, in itself becomes a loyalty proposition by getting your product and service right. And, you can, and then you can... You then need to look at, once you've got those sort of um, structural things in play, you then need to look at how do you then engage your customers and what is the best way if you want to scale and talk to them and do all the, the cool things that you can do in a loyalty program. But a loyalty program doesn't have to be in a, a points program. So you look at something like an Amazon um, Prime piece, you look at the engagement, the conversation we just had before around Gen Z and how you need a, a bigger brand engagement, so maybe more emotional or more fluffy. Um, benefits are required into a program to drive engagement and drive loyalty for, for that brand. Thank you for that, Craig. And that's just about all we've got time for tonight. So thank you to my guests, Phil Gunter, Joanne Ward, Stuart Dennis, Dave Canty, Alan Lias, Craig Grimshaw, Adam Posner and David Feldman. If you like the podcast tonight, please like, share and comment on LinkedIn using the hashtag The Loyalty Podcast. Thank you again for listening. We look forward to having your company again soon. Thank you and goodbye.